Welcome to the Buckinghamshire History Festival 2021 podcast. My name is Catherine Gwynne. I'm part of the team at Bucks Archives. A lot of the time when I'm at work, I spend sitting and vigilating researchers in our search room. And it's been hard not to notice over the past five years, the increasing number of people coming in to research the history of a house. This is due in part to the popularity of the BBC programme A House Through Time. When we recorded this podcast in September, the fourth series of this had just begun to air. So, this podcast, we listen in as two house historians, Cathy Souten and Mel Back Hansen, compare notes. Okay, hello. Um, so I'm Cathy Souten and I'm a professional house historian based in Buckinghamshire. And I'm delighted to have been asked to talk to fellow house historian Melanie Back Hansen for the Box History Festival about the work she does as a house historian. So welcome, Mel. Um, I should add that Mel and I are part of a sort of small group of house historians that got together virtually uh, last year during the pandemic and we host a, a house history hour on Twitter every Thursday evening where we discuss all aspects of house histories and it provides um, a platform really to, to answer questions and exchange tips and that sort of thing. It's fair to say that we've all found recently that there's, there's a real growing interest in house histories at the moment and one of the main reasons for that is from the, the TV programme House Through Time which has recently finished its fourth series. The latest one was set in Leeds. So I'd like to start by asking you, Melanie, since you're the research consultant for House Through Time, a few questions about the programme. And I think one that I think a lot of people probably wonder about who've watched the programme is, is how the house that's featured is selected in the first place. So, so maybe you could just explain a bit about the, the processes that involved in that. I should probably start by saying I'm not super involved with choosing. Basically, it's the, the upper echelons of the BBC and, and the production company that make that final decision. But yeah, there, it's got to the point, that, uh, interestingly, that now that the series has been going on for a few years, that when they announced that it was going to be Leeds, actually there were so many people that submitted houses that they would like to be featured and there was one story of an entire terrace that actually submitted to be a part of the program to, yes. to be something a bit different do the whole terrace not just one mm. house um they, they have something like 80 to 100 different houses it's actually just a process as a there's a team of researchers who basically do a little bit of research on each of the houses they whittle it down. The key point is for the television programme, they need enough stories to fill four episodes. You could get a house that actually had an amazing beginning and it, you know, it was built in the 1750s and had an amazing story throughout the 18th century. But by the 19th century, nothing happened. In the 20th century, nothing happened. So of course, that's not going to Bill a television series so there's all those those elements that they need to think about and and how they can actually pace the stories out through four episodes so they start with this long list and then they whittle it down and they whittle it down they get to a short list and that actually tends to be when I get involved when they're starting to do more in-depth research mm. so they've got they usually get it down to I think about 20 or 30 houses they've got those initial stories but now they're sort of delving further 
normally I'm sort of on call, as it were, um, for the research team, particularly for Leeds with this last series, because mm. uh, the researchers were trying to research the houses. We were in lockdown. We couldn't get yeah. access to the archives. So mm-hmm. a lot of them, we had a few Zoom calls with researchers saying, OK, I've got this bit and I've got this bit. What else can I look at? Or got the house on the tithe map, but it's not it's not clear what it's what the story is or what you know where can I go and what can I look at next so I'm brought in more sort of troubleshooting and and helping the team to sort of move on and fill in the gaps and different options for research and then eventually we get it down to sort of a a well I think it was about five and then I was more involved with one particular house which would have been brilliant and it was chosen and it was a much older house it was a 17th century house on the outskirts of Leeds And we were all set to start filming January and we went into our next lockdown and they had to basically went to plan B. And that was the house uh, in Headingley that that featured in the series. So, but that's the way it goes. Ultimately, it's the BBC. There's two, the production company and the BBC have a sort of top three and they choose the final one that they think is going to work the best. So that's how, how it all happens. That's fascinating, isn't it? And it's sort of a shame in a way when someone's rejected. It's almost as if, oh, you know, mm. we must have a sort of backup pro or a programme later on about, you know, the ones that, that we rejected almost, because I'm sure that they would be, you know, just as interesting. And yeah. it, it must have been a real challenge obviously this year because of the pandemic and I've sort of noticed just when I when I looked at the programme that sort of some of the sort of the um uh, the records that were used, sort of things like trade directories and newspaper entries, a lot of those are ones that are available online these days because they're in the main. So that that must have made things a bit easier in that respect. Yeah, I think when they made that final decision to go with the Headingley House, that, yeah, it was 19th century. Sure, the homeowners had the deeds, so that was an enormous mm. help. So, yeah. you know, quite often the, there are no deeds, or if there are, you have to delve through the archives yeah. to find the collections. I think that's true because a lot of it was based on more readily available documents online, like mm. the census and the directories, and and yeah, the the newspapers, and and then from there they had some great contacts with. former occupants or living people who had memories of people that lived there before so they could speak to people like that so yeah Mm. it's that's just the way it goes I guess yeah but the lovely thing is when obviously each one is is completely different isn't it Mm. you know and sort of so much depends on the people who were living there and and I think if you can get ones that um that were actually lived in the house be it however long ago and there mm. um because there, there, there was a lady on this week who was living there oh probably 40 50 years ago but it was lovely yeah, yeah. that um that she was sort of brought in to to talk about it exactly yeah so it's sort of fascinating what you can find I suppose obviously as well you've got the people who own the house that got to be willing to have have it featured on tv but I suppose they, yes. they put their their details forward in the first place so yes um, yeah no but you're right that's an important important point because I think some of the early series where they actually pamphleted areas so like the the Newcastle and I think even the Liverpool when they had the first the very first series of course no one knew what it was I think in that case it was also yeah you had to find the stories but then you also had to find the homeowners who were willing to have the cameras come in and actually have the house on television so that is that is another feature that they've got to consider 
Do you know how the owners sort of reacted to the information then? Because there's sort of so much that, that, that's been found out about the previous occupants. What, what were their, their well, reactions? Well, I'm afraid, I, sadly, I, don't, I didn't meet them. So I don't know directly. Um, mm-hmm. from, what I, from what I gather, certainly from previous series, that it's all well received and they mm-hmm. love it. You know, like we, we find in our own research that, yeah. you know, it's normally the homeowners who've commissioned us to research the history mm-hmm. of their house. And they're just super keen to know anything and everything. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's very much, yeah, they're in raptures about everything that they can, that we can find. And actually just, I get the breadth of history, I guess, is probably the key to it, where, mm-hmm. you know, it's everything from workers' strikes and industrial accidents. And then there was the, the man who had uh, shell shock after the First World War, mm-hmm. you know, and then there was the man who sort of, well, they, think he was sort of poisoned by the work that he was doing Mm. and so all sorts of stories that of course isn't sort of run of the mill it's not your normal kind of stories that that's one of the fascinating things about house histories isn't it that you never know at the outset what you're going to find and sort of part of the joy in in researching properties is that you can find so many different stories and you just you just never know what what you're going to come up up against yeah. you know, where good bad indifferent whatever you know so that is it so yeah it I mean I guess that's why people love it it's um mm. there's just so many different kinds of stories but I think also one of the really key elements is the fact that it's the, it's not normal people um you know like it's, yeah. it's everyday working people mm. or people who are you know perhaps up against challenges and they overcome them or perhaps people have got marital problems and there's divorce or there's there's death and then then yeah there's their working relationships and there's the maybe there's crime maybe that you know there's all sorts of things but it's it's the stories of sort of ordinary people Mm. from the past it's not some big politician uh, aristocrat actually most of the time it's sort of ordinary people just getting on with life and the ups and downs that that unveils through different periods of history and I think that just sort of shows that ordinary people have fascinating lives or things that have happened to them that are really interesting, fascinating. You know, they don't need to be rich or famous or have yeah, high powered yeah. jobs or whatever for, for events in their, their life, whether they're good, bad or whatever, you know, to, mm. um, to affect them. And it's often that there's sort of so many sort of circumstances and factors that can influence that, you know from things at a local level, the local accident or whatever, you know, to regional events, to national or international like wars, they all have a, and have an impact on on people's lives, so. Yeah, so true, yeah, yeah. Mm. And that's what people find interesting, because if they, to your house or to your area, I mean, that's the thing with the current series, but it happened with all the other ones, that the number of times you see on Twitter or you see some feedback somewhere, that someone says, oh, I used to walk down that street and I've always wondered what their house was like, or I went to university and I lived in a flat two doors down, or and it's actually that relationship. Then they're put in the context of what was happening in that area. So the Guinness, Guinea Street in Bristol, and the mm-hmm. fact that actually half the street was bombed and it, you know, it was actually severely affected by bombing during the war. It was only sort of luck that the house that they were researching was basically right on the edge of where, that, where the bombs fell. People have got a context to understand if I walk down this street and then I know what went on and oh my gosh, okay, now I understand. So yeah, it's there's just so much to it, which is mm. yeah. And I think I should mention at this point that Mel, you've co-authored the book House Through Time with the presenter David Olasu um, Soga, which accompanies the program, which 
it's now in paperback, isn't it? If you talk a bit about it, because I think it, it goes beyond the, the houses that are featured in, in the series, doesn't it? Yeah, so. and that's an important point. I think a lot of people think, oh, is that just all about the houses in the series? And, and you, you can understand that they might think that, but actually the book is the story of all our houses through time. So it's actually taking the story of how we've lived through the centuries. So everything from sort of, pre-medieval all the way actually we start with like Roman houses but in essence it's actually largely from the medieval period through to you know how do we go from timber framed houses like uh, you know the shambles in York mm. to how did we turn to brick and why, why did we end up with the terraced house and how did people used to live in the different rooms and when did bathrooms first come into houses and you know or flushing toilets or how did we then adapt through different circumstances and and how did the streets get built and then how did that turn into Victorian and Edwardian but then also another important point is we look at all the different sort of social strata so actually I think a lot of the times when you look at a, a book about the history of houses they tend to look at the structural history of bigger houses, the, the larger houses of the sort of more affluent members of society or even just the big stately homes. And actually, this is about sort of ordinary houses. But it's also we look at the slumber living, the slum housing that affected so many people through different centuries. Someone could be living in a very nice, comfortable middle class home in the Victorian period, but a, a suburb across so you know there's several families crammed into a single room in slum dwellings and then how did that transform to social housing and how did we to the first world war we had the whole homes fit for heroes and how did we get sort of philanthropic housing and social housing and then the expansion of the suburbs and then the, you know and it's all mm. that story of houses through time and that's so it, there's so much more. We refer to the houses in the programme largely as examples because they're sort of illustrative in, in the different different parts of the country for a start. But then, of course, just the, the different stories that they had. So there's there's a lot to the book that's more than just what's in the in the TV series. Yeah, you know, I would say it's all well worth we read because it it does sort of show how houses have developed and um you know as you say sort of from the sort of pre-medieval period and I think you know obviously we all live in houses and it yeah. it, it's something we can we can relate to you know it's not just yeah. the, the sort of the high status or stately homes or whatever you know it's I think it's often the um the the more ordinary houses that, that are the more interesting ones yeah yeah and that's it I mean that's what the tv show is really illustrated that actually it's seemingly ordinary houses but they've got these amazing stories yeah. so I mean I love visiting stately homes like anyone you know mm. <laughs> everyone everyone loves going to a, a, yeah. a national trust or a historic mm. England house or whatever it is especially through lockdown and you probably found this I think a lot of people we've been stuck indoors we've been stuck inside our houses mm. and actually whether it's okay, how do we work from home? How do we divide up living space so that there's place for homeschooling? But equally, people are looking around going, well, I wonder what this room was before, or I wonder mm. why that's sort of tagged on the back of the house and how did that come about? And so actually, I think a lot of people have been asking those questions and just thinking yeah. about the space that they live in. 
And I think what's interesting as well is sort of how houses sort of have changed over time, you know, in that they may have originally been built as sort of designed for one household and then they were sort of divided into sort of two or three households all yeah, right. crammed in together. And now they've sort of reverted back, sort of say, to one bigger house again. Mm, so I think just yeah. because the house is sort of the way it is now, it may well have been completely different a few decades ago. Talking about house history more generally now, I think... I, I certainly find being a house history um, historian is, is sort of such a niche profession, really, that, yeah. that people are often <laughs> unaware that it's something that you could actually do for a living. Yeah, but, yeah. So I was sort of wondering how, how you got into the sort of profession. It's a really good question. As you say, I think, uh, you know, even in the history world, being a house historian is still very unique. Mm. There's, there's sort of only really a handful or two of us across the country. Um, and certainly those of us who sort of do houses all over. As far as I'm aware, actually, most people I know who do this come into it in slightly different ways. And mine is a bit odd, largely because I studied history at university, obviously loved it, but I didn't want to go down the academic route. Um, and also I studied history in Australia, which is where I grew up. Um, although I've lived in England for over 20 years now. When I graduated, this certainly was not an option, certainly in Australia. I was in publishing for many years. And then uh, it was a very roundabout turn of events. And it was an estate agent who wanted someone who could do marketing and PR, which is what I'd been doing in publishing, but also someone who could research the history of houses. So it was a very random combination of skills. And they wanted someone to tell the story, the histories of houses that they had on the market. That's how I fell into it, shall we say. And I was there for almost six years. And in the process, um, was asked to write my first book. And then I was getting asked to do so many private commissions that I started to think, hmm, maybe I could do this on my own. So now, uh, over nine years later, and I've, I've been freelance and obviously written another, I wrote my second book and then wrote the book with David. Yeah. So off the back of that, you know, I started doing talks to history groups and universities mm. and uh, now, you know, media and different things. And then, yeah, with the, the consulting and the house through time. But the bulk of my work is private commissions, private homeowners in different parts of the country. You know, everything from a short report to an entire book on the history of their house. Do you have a particular favourite type of house to research in terms of age or style or that? Or is it more just about the, the, the history of the people who, who lived there? You know? uh, yeah, because I specialise in the social history, I, I'm very much about telling the stories of people through the life of a house. So that tends to be the core, no matter how old the house is. I've just recently finished a house in Essex that was built in the 1520s, wow. which was yeah. qu quite, a, <laughs> quite a task. It was, has quite an amazing history. It's a very old sort of timber framed sort of something you'd expect to see out of Harry Potter almost. Like it's that kind yeah. of quirky, um, but it had, you know, fascinating stories. It was a farmhouse for many years, but then it also had stories of like a brother shooting another brother. And then there was a suicide and then there was all sorts of drama. But then equally, I've done houses that were built in the 1920s. And they're equally as interesting, um, just depending on, you know, who the people were and the stories that you uncover. So I tend to favour Georgian Victorian history, but then, you know, it changes, as you say, like each house that comes along, I get engulfed in that. And I love it no matter what. So I guess I'm all about the history in general, and it shouldn't matter too much about the age of the house. 
sort of tend to agree with you. I think, you know, I, they're, they're sort of certain styles of property I, li- I like more than, yeah, than others. Yeah. But I think a lot of it is just the unknown when you first start out as, well, as to what you're mm. going to be able to find out about it. And I suppose in some respects, um, the further back in time, it's a bit like family history in that, that there's sort of fewer records available, which can be sort of frustrating, yeah, yeah. you know, when you just yeah, can't yeah. get to the, the bottom of sort of something exactly, you know, and sometimes you can it all depends what records have survived and yes what that's so true property it was and yeah, um yeah. on what basis it whether it was freehold or leasehold or copyhold yeah, yeah. or the old manure system that sort of thing so it, it varies doesn't it yeah so, yeah incredibly yeah have you got any sort of particular houses that you've researched that are your favourite ones or such, where you've just sort of found really fascinating stories <laughs> that you could <laughs> sort of share? Yeah, I mean, as I say, I think most houses I work on, I tend to get engulfed in that, and I yeah. I love whatever I'm working on. But the the one that I tend to sort of lean towards was actually a house I was researching in Gloucestershire, which it had been extended in the 18th century, and so that was clear. It was quite clear that it had been extended. But when I originally started researching it, I could only get back to the 18th century. So it was a bit of a puzzle. Like, you know, there was this earlier bit that we knew was older and was sort of suspected as being sort of 16th century. Um, You know, huge, thick walls that had clearly been a a smaller farmhouse. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so going through the records, and I think part of the reason was that the owners were willing to let me spend time on it. And... I was digging and digging and finally found a sort of elusive document that pieced it together and took it back. Basically, it was a marriage agreement for 1764, which allowed me to go back to the 1680s, which then Mm -hmm. through uh, menorah records and others to take it back to the 1580s and found that the property and the land and actually a nearby village had originally been granted to Elizabeth I. So, yeah, I know. So I'm in the archives going, no, amazing. And yeah. but then it actually got even more exciting because she didn't hold on to it for very long, which, which sounds a bit boring, but she gave it to her personal physician at the time, who was a, a Dr. Lopez. Um, and this is the time of the Spanish Armada and there were, you know, spies from, from Spain and Portugal. He got himself a bit caught up. He had basically made an enemy of the wrong person in the Elizabethan court. And he was accused of trying to poison the queen. He was arrested, he was tortured, and eventually executed in 1594. But his story was so sort of, even then, a headline news that it's believed that Shakespeare used his story as the inspiration for Shylock in The Merchant of Venice. So I know, so I'm telling the homeowner this, and they're like, oh, oh my God. Yeah, they must have been. Yeah, just story. I mean, the most, and it's all through. What is really fun is that not only is that story amazing, but all through the records, because the way that the the land and the property was transferred was done really badly, and so there's actually all these records which got Lopez all over it, which was mentioning basically Lopez leases that were sketchy, that were a bit dodgy. Mm. Um, So it all linked, but it was very securely linked. And that's what was quite nice is that I had firm evidence, written records that clearly stated that he he had a dodgy lease, but he was still connected and he definitely did own the land. So there's all that going on. And then 200 years later, there was another owner who ended up being 
a merchant in France. He, he ended up leasing the house and moving off to Le Havre in France. This is at the time of the French Revolution, so it's all kicking off, but he yeah. became quite a wealthy merchant. And then he happened to become very friendly with Thomas Jefferson, the future president of the United States. Yeah. He, was, he had been leaving Paris to head back to the States um, because he'd previously been the ambassador to France. And then at the same time, he became friendly with Mary Wollstonecraft, who he actually rented rooms to Mary Wollstonecraft and was on the witness to the birth of Fanny Imlay, her first daughter. So this one house in the Cotswolds was this amazing story of Elizabeth I and Shakespeare and Mary Wollstonecraft and yeah, amazing, yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, you almost wouldn't believe it, would you, until you researched it? So I know, yeah. I know. Do you have any sort of particular favourite records that you go to as the as your sort of first type of record to look at? I think most of the time I'd be lying if I didn't just go to the census and see if I could find the street. But there's a danger with that, with with in terms of street numbering and and house numbers and things. So that's with a bit of a warning. Also, because actually it can be quite tricky to find the right house if it's not clearly labelled, you know, so that's also a tricky thing. But I think I I tend to be quite methodical. I think if I'm starting, I go to maps and then I go to local history to sort of get an understanding and then local history will perhaps tell me who landowners were or if there was a Lord of the Manor or those sort of key bits. And then if archive closures are not a limit, (laughs) um, (laughs) then there's, I guess there's a whole sort of gamut of, you know, electoral registers and directories. And then things like the 1910 valuation is a a big one. I think it's increasingly becoming available online, but it's largely London and the home counties. But I believe Bucks is. Yes, yeah. Um, it's not, not every parish, so it's sort of a bit hit and miss whether it's the particular parish you're you're interested in. But yeah, quite a number of parishes are yeah. now covered by the the genealogies. So I think yeah. if you're if you're interested in researching property in books, then it's sort of worth checking to sort of see if it's yeah. included yeah. on the site because it, it's sort of such a fabulous sort of source of information. Yeah. Well, that's it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, if it's online or if you go to the National Archives, I mean, the fact that the house is clearly labelled on a map and, you know, if there's any confusion about which house you're looking at, which can happen, Mm. um, but you've clearly got it labelled on a map and it's given a number and then the number has got uh, matches with the field book, which just gives so much information about the, the owner, the occupant, give details about when the last sale took place or when the last rental agreement took place uh it gives a description of the house uh sometimes there's plans you know so and also because of the time it's what between 1940 uh, 1910 and 1915 but then you can nicely match that with the 1911 census Uh, so that's a really big pivotal point um and then obviously you can go forward into the 20th century and look at directories and electoral rolls and things and and soon the 1921 census which is coming out early 2022 so everyone's looking forward to that but then going backwards it's enormously useful to have the owner and the occupant um which is a key point i think a lot of people forget that most people rented so it's important to remember that you might be looking at two different names and 
different records to see who the owner was and who the actual occupant was. Yeah, but, that, yeah. I think that's a really important point, isn't it? Because all too often you've got the, the names in there and then the electoral registers or the trade directories and you can often think, oh, well, they must have owned the property as well. But I think for in most cases they probably didn't so yeah exactly so. exactly but and it's also worth mentioning the tithe that's a big mm -hmm. chunk if you for the uh, sort of early 19th century roughly around the 1840s and late 1830s again there's a map and a corresponding award mm -hmm. uh or apportionment i always get those confused yeah. um <laughs> but the key again is you've got the house on a map that's clearly labeled with a number and then you've got the corresponding apportionment which gives you at least the name of the owner the occupant and the use of the land yeah. so at the very minimum sometimes you get extra bits and pieces but yeah that's and again you can match that with the 1841 census and it gives such a, a breadth yeah. you know depending on the age of the house that you're looking at obviously and I think for, for Buckinghamshire, because it was sort of a very rural um, county, mm. in that, and it's sort of so frustrating, isn't it, when you're looking at sort of census returns, and all too often for sort of smaller parishes, when they were just sort of villages or hamlets, you, yeah. you don't even have the name of the road in some cases. No. It was just the, it's the li literally the just village. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So trying yeah. to find the right property, you know, that that can be the case even as far you know up into the the 1911 census so having yeah. the, the valuation records that the, the tithe um sort of maps if it survived they can be sort of so mm. so useful have you researched so many properties in in buckinghamshire or you here and there it sort of comes in waves um mm. i did do one last year which was actually really curious it was a standalone house that was built actually in the 1920s it was a bit tricky because actually a lot of the more common sources mm -hmm. that we look at and as you say especially for sort of rural setting I couldn't access you know it was actually it was built after all those records we've just mentioned yeah and then it it was a bit curious the name changed as well so actually each time a new person moved in they changed the name of the house so if you're trying to if you're trying to match who was there and the name of the house oh gosh it was quite complicated but interestingly I found really it was a bit it was a good and bad, but basically in the Bucks record office, there were the council minutes for planning. And this is actually perhaps not, doesn't sound like the most exciting record to go to, um, but actually, particularly for the 20th century, then when there are gaps and things, this can be a good source. So if you're trying to find when a street was first laid or something like that. But in this case, there was a particular department that was taking down applications for new houses. And I found the name of the house and the person that made the application and it yeah. turns out it was an architect who actually built the house next door so oh, actually nice. it all started to slowly fall into place it was yeah. it was a bit tricky because I was worried that maybe it was the house next door that was yeah. on the application but then I discovered the house next door was done first and a bit earlier yeah. but yeah I mean there were some gaps in in the council minutes that made it a bit tricky but I managed mm. to sort of squeeze out the information but yeah that was the most recent and it had it ended up being home to a famous racing car driver and yeah all sorts so yeah, yeah some yeah, interesting house history yeah yeah and I think it all depends what records have survived doesn't it because I yeah. think um there are sort of planning application records for parts of box in sort of certain areas but it's just potluck whether the the property yeah. you're researching is it is in that particular area where it's sort of covered or not I think that sort of rounds up what we're going to sort of talk about but um yeah. so I'd just like to sort of say a big thanks again Mel for 
chatting to me about sort of house histories and if you want any more details about the books that that Mel's written or any of them any other information then uh, the details are on the the books history festivals website so thanks Mel thanks Kathy thanks thank you for listening you can find more podcasts on the history festivals website and you can connect with us on twitter and facebook where we are at hist fest bucks see you next time